The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning, and I want to welcome each and every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ today. It is wonderful to see some fresh faces. I know we have some people out of town for Thanksgiving. I know we've also got some folks in town for Thanksgiving. My folks are in town for Thanksgiving, my sister and her husband, and so it's, uh, it's great to see all of you here this morning. And uh, if you're a visitor and you want uh, us to be able to connect with you, we've got visitor cards in the lobby that you can fill out, or there's also a QR code in your Sunday sheet that you can access the digital version from. So we're grateful for your presence here this morning. We just wanted to welcome you. And it's a great Sunday to be with us because it is the first Sunday of Advent. And if you're not familiar with the church year or the church calendar, if you're new around here, um, Advent is the four weeks that we observe leading up to the celebration of Christmas, the incarnation. And so Advent's just a Latin word that means arrival. And this is the time of year when the church at large has decided to focus intently on Jesus' arrival, the anticipation of his first arrival in the incarnation, and the anticipation of his second arrival in the second coming, when he comes again to judge and redeem and renew all things. So I'm glad you're here with us for Advent, the beginning of it. I hope you'll be here the next three weeks as well. It's always a wonderful time here at the Springs. And so in keeping with Advent, and specifically in keeping with the gospel of peace, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 2 this morning, if you want to turn over in your Bibles. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we truly give thanks to you this morning for your hope, for your love, for your joy, and for your peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding, a peace that we see revealed and established in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We give thanks for that peace, and I ask you this morning that you would illuminate our hearts through your Holy Spirit in these words, and Lord, I ask for the gift of preaching this morning. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things, amen. I had to text my sister earlier this week who lives in New York with her husband Randy 
because I couldn't find the address of the United Nations headquarters. I, I, trust me, I searched Google Maps, I searched Google Search, and I just could not find an actual mailing address. Fortunately, she was able to help me. We found out it's actually at 46th and 1st in New York. That's where the UN building has sat since 1952 when it was completed. Right there, 39 stories, 500 feet, right on the edge of the East River. And you may have seen it in person, you may have seen pictures of it, but what you may not have seen is what sits across the street from it. Across the street from the UN building in New York is a little municipal park called Ralph Bunch Park, and in this park is a little two-story wall called the Isaiah Wall. And it's called the Isaiah Wall because engraved in its granite, are the words, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's a two-story wall, so it you know, looks big, I'm sure, when you're standing next to it. But when you think of it being across the street from 39 stories, a two-story wall feels small indeed. And that's a bit like what it's like talking about peace in our world ravaged by violence. It feels like a 20-foot wall across the street from a 500-foot building. You see, the UN was founded in, after World War II as a peacekeeping endeavor, and no doubt it's done much peacekeeping and much good in the world. And yet, in a sense, it kind of looks down and mocks that Isaiah wall with our history that continues in addiction to violence. Even just in conflicts after World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Bosnia, Rwanda, Congo, Iraq, Afghanistan, our world is addicted to this cycle of bloodshed and violence and warfare. And we've not beaten swords into plowshares, we've transformed them into guns and bombs and drones. And so there the Isaiah wall sits, calling the nations to peace. But that's actually the opposite of the way we usually tell the story, isn't it? Usually, it's not Isaiah or Christianity calling the world to peace, but it's actually the secular nation-state that saves Christianity or religion from its violence, right? That's actually what the conventional wisdom is of our day, that it's not religion or Isaiah or Christianity that calls the nations to peace, it's the nations that calls them to peace, that protects them from themselves. All right, and I want to spend a moment talking about this because I think if we already think the gospel of peace is really the bad news of turmoil, it's going to be hard to hear from our text this morning. And so I want to say a couple things about this. And the first one is an indictment of Christianity, and the second is a partial defense. So first, Christians have tragically, shamefully been deeply guilty of violence throughout our history. Wars, rumors of wars, violence, bloodshed. We have tragically 
perverted the explicit teachings of Jesus and instead acquiesced to violence many, many times. And almost nothing in the history of Christianity does more to damage our witness than this complicity in violence and warfare. That's the indictment. The defense is this, and it might seem small, but the defense is that Christians are not inherently more violent people than other people. Christianity is not an ideology that makes people inherently more violent. We can broaden it even and say that religion is not an ideology that inherently makes people more violent than other ideologies. Now, I know that goes against the conventional wisdom again, doesn't it? The conventional wisdom is that uh, religion alone is this thing that is, you know, prone to absolutism and fanaticism and irrationality. And so it's, again, religion that needs to be saved from itself by the secular nation state. This is what William Kavanaugh calls the myth of religious violence. And there's a couple problems with this myth that I just want to spend a moment on. The first one is is defining religion. Because, first of all, religion as this kind of separate entity apart from politics and economics and culture is a really modern Western idea. It's one that we've imposed on other cultures that normally in the past wouldn't have thought of religion as something you could pull out of politics, economics, culture, etc. And so defining religion is hard. And people who, you know, criticize religion as inherently violent have a tough time nailing down what it is because if we define religion too narrowly as, say, belief in God or gods, it would exclude things like Buddhism or Confucianism, which don't actually believe in God or gods. But if we define religion too broadly, well, it doesn't really stand for much at all, right? Just something significant around which we order our life. And in fact, There's really no evidence that religion is any more prone to absolutism, fanaticism, or irrationality than, say, patriotism, nationalism, capitalism, Marxism, right? There's there's no shortage of history in body counts equated with these ideologies as well. So there's a problem in defining religion. There's also the wars of religion, right? People will point to the 16th and 17th centuries when Christians, Protestants, and Catholics were kind of going after each other, and, you know, we believe that these wars are fueled inherently by doctrine, by dogma. But part of the challenge is that the historical record has a lot of anomalies, a lot of exceptions, that in the historical record, it's not just Protestants fighting Catholics over dogma, but it's Protestants fighting Protestants. It's Catholics fighting Catholics. It's Catholics and Protestants teaming up against other Catholics or Protestants. It's French Catholics making alliances with Turkish Muslims against other Catholics. You see, so the the lines of, of warfare aren't quite so neatly divided by doctrine or dogma or allegiance, religiously speaking. And so what we find is that during this period, the church 
the power in that time is being transferred from the church to the state. And what William Kavanaugh argues is this. He says the transfer of power from the church to the state appears not so much as a solution to the wars in question, but as a cause of those wars. So-called wars of religion appear as wars fought by state-building elites for the purpose of consolidating their power over the church and other rivals. I think, we, I think we see this borne out today, especially in the West. The thing that we are most ready to kill for is not our Christianity, our religion, it's our nation. Right? The thing that really has a kind of religious loyalty to us at times in the West is nationalism. Right? We've got our, our hymns, we've got the national anthem. We've got our, our sacred objects, the flag. We've got perhaps our God, America. And sometimes our nations call us to this violence. And the 20th century really bears out the bloodiest century in human history and the body count for the secular nation state frankly doesn't look good. And so, Isaiah calls the nations to peace. Isaiah calls the nations to give up their violence. He says, in days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Isaiah gives us this prophetic, this hopeful image of a future in which people aren't divided by anything, by nations, by ideology, but peoples are coming to the house of God to learn to walk in his ways. It says to learn instruction. And in fact, you know that word instruction. Uh, the Hebrew word is Torah. And Torah is the word that we use to talk about the Pentateuch, right? The first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's the Torah. Torah is God's law, God's instruction. This is God commanding his people of a covenant way of life with him. And so what we find in the New Testament is that Jesus is the one who comes and we confess that he fulfills this law, this Torah. That it is Jesus who Paul says in Romans 10 is the end, the goal, or the purpose of the law. And if there's anywhere in the Gospels that we find Jesus fulfilling this teaching, this instruction, he is this word of Lord from the Jerusalem. If there's anywhere we find it, I think it's in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Because when God gives the law in Exodus, when he calls a people into being through this instruction, he does it on a mountain. And here in Matthew, we have Jesus calling a people into being, bringing a people together by instruction in the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus says this, 
You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you. And do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Do not resist an evildoer. My, how far short of these words we have fallen. Christians aren't inherently more violent than other people, but our standard is not comparison to other people. Our standard is the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, Jesus Christ. And it's been said that organized Christianity could be defined as the attempt to get around the Sermon on the Mount without rejecting Jesus. Pretty damning words. In fact, G.K. Chesterton, in a similar vein, he says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Because these are radical words. These are really radical instructions from Jesus. Turn the other cheek. Give to everyone who asks from you. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. We have trouble loving the people we love. It's Thanksgiving, right? My family was like, yeah, Brett, it's hard to love you at times. (laughs) These are radical, radical words. But these are precisely the words we would expect if they were the words leading into Isaiah's vision. If they were the words that Isaiah talks about when he talks about this instruction from Jerusalem that he says he shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So the correlative of this instruction of peace that we get in Isaiah in Jesus, this learning of peace, is the unlearning of war is that nations no longer learn war anymore because war is something we must learn. I've been watching Ken Burns' documentary on Vietnam. It's really, really wonderfully done. And in the fifth episode, there's this chilling soundbite from a veteran named John Musgrave. And uh, he speaks really eloquently about this experience he had in war. And he he talks about, in this soundbite, he says, you know, I only killed one human being in Vietnam. He says, I only killed one human being in Vietnam. That was the first guy I killed. And then then he says, after that, I, I made my deal with the devil. 
and I decided that I wasn't going to kill anybody else, any other humans. However, and here he uses words I won't repeat, but he says, I will waste as many derogatory terms as possible. I will smoke as many ethnic slur as I can find. I will massacre as many racial epithet as I can. It speaks powerfully to this, this awful experience of him having to learn war. Having to learn. Because yes, we're all given to violence in this fallen, broken world. But this is also something we have to learn. And so Isaiah says, it's something we have to stop learning. Isaiah says, it's something we have to stop learning, to no longer learn anymore. And look at the wonderful poetic imagery. And if you go to verse four here, there's that beautiful imagery of swords being beaten into plowshares. Swords being beaten into plowshares and spears being beaten into pruning hooks. It's, it's wonderful imagery because what do you notice about that piece? It's not just a piece that disposes of the weapons of war. It's not just getting rid of the instruments of death. It's changing instruments of death into instruments of life. It's transforming the weapons of war into weapons of spirit. It's transforming these weapons of death to things that cultivate, that give life, right? Because we're taking swords and making them farming equipment. We're taking spears and we're making them gardening tools. Peace is not just this passive thing, but it is an active working towards, an active fighting towards the shalom that God wants to bring about on earth as in heaven. Christianity, there is this misconception about Christianity that frankly I think at times we've earned that it's just about not doing bad things. It's just about not sinning, which it absolutely is about that but it's also about turning from death to life. It's, all, it's about being freed from sin and death and freed for life and peace. The good news of peace that we see in Christ. And so the truth of Advent, the truth of the gospel of peace, as we stand here in Advent between the two arrivals, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, I think what we learn right here is that we work for peace as we wait for peace. We work for peace as we wait for peace. We must work towards peace witnessing toward the peace of Christ, speaking truth to power, to our governments, bringing peace to our homes, our cities, our churches, our nations, our world. We work for this peace as Christians. But even as we work for peace, we also wait for capital P, peace. We wait for a final, 
ultimate peace that only the second arrival of Jesus Christ can fully bring. Every time we work for the peace here now, we are echoing the final ultimate peace of hereafter when Jesus finally comes to judge and redeem and renew all things. And so in this Advent, this time between the Advents, we work for peace as we wait for peace. And we work for peace as we wait for peace because Jesus himself has won peace. Jesus himself has won peace on the cross and in the resurrection. And what he's given us as Christians, as a society that is supposed to be built around peace, what he's given us to embody this peace is a meal, is a table. He's given us something tangible that can embody this peace in the bread and the cup. The peace that he has won, that Paul says in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. On the cross, Jesus dismantles all the justified violence of every human society. On the cross, Jesus finally makes peace and a society devoted to peace so that we at the table proclaim his death until he comes and so we proclaim the end of death. We proclaim the end of crosses. We proclaim the end of guns and wars and drones and bombs at the table, we unlearn war because we've come instead to learn how to feast. At the table, we've come to unlearn division because we've come instead to learn unity. At the table, we've come to unlearn our turmoil and our strife, our hatred, our contempt, our racism, our anger, because we've come instead to learn the gospel of peace that truly is good news to the world and calls all the nations to the peace that Christ alone has accomplished. So it's here at the tables, church, that we work for peace as we wait for the peace that Christ has won. I want to invite you to come now to the tables and experience that gospel of peace.